regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi listeners, this is Datacast, where I hold long-form conversation with data practitioners and researchers to unpack the narrative journeys of the career. My guest today is Pukal Pasankar, the co-founder of Atlan. Atlan is a modern data collaboration workspace like GitHub for engineering or Figma for design. By acting as a virtual hub for data access, ranging from tables and dashboard to models and code, Atlan enables team to create a single source of truth for all the data assets and collaborate across the modern data stack through deep integrations with tools like Slack, BI and data science tools and more. As a pioneer in the space, Atlan was recognized by Gartner as a cool vendor in DataOps as one of the top three companies globally Prokapa previously co-founded Social Corps, a world-leading data-for-good company recognized as a New York Times Global Visionary and a World Economic Forum Tech Pioneer. Social Corps is behind landmark data projects, including India's National Data Platform and SDG's Global Monitoring in collaboration with the United Nations. Prokapa was awarded the Economic Times Emerging Entrepreneur for the Year and recognized in multiple lists such as Forbes 30 under 30, Fortune 40 under 40, and Top 10 CNBC young businesswoman in 2016. Um, so Prakapa, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, James. By way of introduction, I believe you were born in India and you did your undergrad degree in engineering at the uh, Nanyang Tech University in Singapore. So can you share briefly about your upbringing uh, as well as your college experience? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, so I grew up in India, didn't have a hometown uh, because my dad used to have a transferable job. So lived in a bunch of different cities growing up. After high school, got a scholarship to go study in Singapore, studied engineering and entrepreneurship, and actually started out in university having a very classical path in some ways, right? So, you know, I did research under an MIT TR35 prof. I spent a ton of time in a lab. From there, I, you know, went through like that crisis that you go uh, get into in college. And so I ended up working at an investment bank. <laughs> and, you know, I was doing a ton of that, I realized that I wasn't happy. Like I was at this, you know, very prestigious investment bank, doing really well, getting paid really well, uh, with, you know, ambitious people, smart people around me, and not loving my work. And I sort of by chance got involved in the startup ecosystem in Singapore, which was a lot more nascent than it is today. So it had a chance to build something called the Singapore Entrepreneurship Challenge, which helped me meet and interact with about 200 entrepreneurs. I realized that I really enjoyed building things up from the ground up. And it was around that time that I met my co-founder, Varun, who is also a batchmate in university. And we started working on a couple of hackathons together and a couple of you know side projects. Some of those are what eventually led to Social Cops, our first startup together. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned a little bit about working on investment banking. And, and in fact, you spent one summer at Goldman Sachs, right? Just as our curiosity, what were some of the key learnings that you observed from that summer? A ton of things. I think Goldman's actually a really professional place for a 
young ambitious person to go to right super fast paced environment i mean i remember my boss she used to be like she used to work from 6 in the morning to like midnight right like you learn work ethic at a place like my team used to average you know 14 hours a day and like that was average like it was you know very smart very ambitious people lots of difficult work statements that come to you uh, i remember one of my most complicated data projects that i personally had to work at on was at goldman so i realized all of the complexities with data cleaning and data you know management and some of those things in in that internship but i think a lot of what i learned was just how do you conduct yourself in a workplace setting what does you know what does hard work and work ethic really mean how do you stay on top so goldman has this like email transparency thing so essentially what that means is like my day one as an intern I have 2000 emails in my inbox and I have no idea like there are things like I can't understand the emails like I literally cannot I wasn't a finance grad right so uh, like there were actually things there that I didn't get and you know you have to figure out okay like am I supposed to respond to this email how do I stay on top of 2000 emails in my inbox right uh, and so a lot of that I think has continued to I think I I still some of those experiences I think shaped me as a young person yeah definitely thank you so much for sharing your story and It seems like that experience really allowed you to be that hustle mode really early on in your career. Right? You kind of really mentioned that in the final year of university, you and your classmate Baron decided to work on a project that later on became Social Corps. And you know, during the research for for this conversation, I came across one of your answers on Cora, basically talking about how you to participate in a business plan competition worldwide, and then eventually won about thirty thousand dollars in U.S. money for seed funding for the company to last about a year in India. So could you mind just kind of sharing kind of the, the original seed idea for Social Corps and kind of the fundraising story? Social Corps just started out as a a random idea at a midnight brainstorm, you know, between Varun and me, and, and we were we had basically made the decision that we were going to try and start up in our final year of university. And the startup was never supposed to be Social Corps. The startup was supposed to be something else. The initial idea of Social Corps is actually something that Varun and a couple of friends had actually worked on. as the app idea in a hackathon and basically it was about you know saying how do you crowdsource data and use that to drive better decision making in the social civic space so think you know how do you get crowdsourced information about you know broken street lights and use that to help drive city budgets you know stuff like that i still remember this very distinctly there's this like midnight conversation where talking about ideas and i remember like you know Varun said, "I wish we could do social clubs." It's important to think about the magnitude of this because we were, you know, scholarship students in Singapore, moving back to India or the Amazon. Like it was just never an option. We were, you know, I remember people back then telling me things like, you know, don't go back to India. It's like a black hole. This is this is way before like India's startup ecosystem turned into what it is today. And you know, like you, this was just like seven or eight years ago. So it was never an option to do this. I remember like going at that point, saying like, "Why not? Like, why don't we do it?" And uh, there was like this moment, and we were like, "Okay, like, is the only thing that's stopping us?" Because in our heads, we always thought that we would, you know, not be moving back, right? We basically started brainstorming the entire night. You know, there's there's passion, there's energy, there's a lot of naivete. Honestly, I think we were like just these like kids who were like really, really passionate about something. Then we were like. Okay, reality struck. We didn't have any money. <laughs> we were scholarship students, so asking our parents for money after we graduated was just not an option anymore. And so, 
uh, we were like, okay, how do we make this happen? So we actually launched a crowdfunding campaign back then. Uh, this was when Kickstarter and things like this were just getting popular. And we remember seeing these things on the homepage of Kickstarter. That was just ridiculous. Okay, like we were like, oh my God, like, look, they're making $50,000. We're saying we're going to solve the biggest problems in like the emerging world. You know, like people are totally going to give us money. So we like overnight, we worked on this video. We put it live. We, I think fell asleep at four in the morning. Uh, and uh, we woke up the next morning and it had gone wild. Mm-hmm. So it's like random Facebook posts, like it's, you know, people connecting us to other people saying, you know, meet my mom who does this, meet my uncle who does this, this is going to help you. Uh, and this was just of the idea. Like there was nothing else that we had at that point. We ended up not raising a ton of money. We just raised like $600, but it actually helped us do a lot of initial user discovery, customer discovery in a very unique way, I would say back then. And so then, you know, we had to basically figure out how to fund ourselves. And that's when we said, okay, let's use our student card. So, you know, what do you have as a student? There are all these business plan competitions everywhere. So we said, okay, let's take part in all of them. So we basically created a Google sheet. We put the names of every single competition around the world. And we basically sent out applications to all of them. Yeah, we ended up raising, I think, about $25,000, $30,000 of funding just as prize money. You know, I remember we would like Skype into like presentations and stuff like that because, you know, you can't like, sometimes you have to like spend more to travel to the location than how much money you're going to like get from the from the competition. But that became enough of our seed capital to actually move back and spend about a year actually figuring out the model. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for sharing the story. I want to double click on the early parts and on about you used like the crowdfunding campaign even to validate, right? Like the feasibility of your idea. Like what do you think that attracted people about that original idea that you and Varun had enough for them to like, you know, throw money in that overnight. Yeah. So I think it was at the time, just a very, very unique idea, nothing else. Honestly, I think there's only one person that we didn't know who gave us money. Uh, and I still remember that moment, like where there was somebody like that we didn't know. I think he gave us like a hundred dollars and it was a very big moment for us because that's responsibility, right? Like I think almost everybody else like who gave us money were like, they knew us in some way or they knew our, they knew people who knew us. And so they were like, oh, like there are these kids, they're trying to do something good. That's how like, I think a lot of the money actually came. But I think I remember the moment where somebody that we didn't know at all, you know, messaged us and said, you know, we're like, I'm really passionate about this problem. And I really hope that you guys can solve it. And I remember that happening. And that was a huge moment for us of responsibility, right? Um, it wasn't about the money, but the fact that someone would trust you so much. And I think it just solidified our, our passion to drive some of this. Definitely, yeah. You also had this in TED Talk back in 2014, basically called Game Apply. And you talk about kind of your story. And I'll be sure to include that in the show notes. So anyone interested can kind of hear about the voice in your head that you used to make that decision to, to go back to India and, and start the social clubs. So can you tell us a little bit about the model at Social Cops and how you work with customers? Yeah, so our model very quickly at Social Cops evolved into that we were the extended data team for our customers. So essentially what we were trying to do was we were saying, how do we use data science to solve the world's biggest problems, right? So national healthcare, poverty alleviation, education, like things that, you know, should use data, but don't use data. And what can we do about them? We very quickly realized that the best way to do that was to partner with organizations that had the most massive impact in the space, right? So whose decisions can you drive? And if you drive their decisions, what kind of impact can it have? Like that was basically the logic 
that we had. So what that meant was very quickly, we started working with customers like, you know, the United Nations or several large governments or nonprofits like the Gates Foundation. And our model turned into that we were the extended data team for our customers. Obviously, they didn't have data teams or technology teams or any of that. So we would basically literally start like just like an internal data team would like start at the problem and we would be responsible for end-to-end implementation of those those problems. And I think that's really where I learned everything that I learned about building and running data teams and, and how complex and chaotic they can be. Representative of like the work that Team Social Cop does, you um, actually gave this very, I think like a beautiful talk, TED Talk called How Big Data Can Influence Decisions That Actually Matter at TEDx Gateway 2017. It talked about some of the data for good initiatives that Social Cops facilitated. And in particular, you reimagine a world where we can catch criminals at the scene of the crime, reroute cars in real time to prevent traffic congestions that we hold so much, predict if a child is going to drop out of school before they even know it, and eradicates the disease as it breaks. So could you mind just kind of unpacking some of the key themes delivered in that talk? Yeah, I think a large part of you know the way we thought about the worldview is, you know, if you take all of the data innovation that is happening in the rest of the world, right? So I mean, today we are essentially ads are being delivered to us in real time based on a ton of data about like how we're interacting, right? Why can you technically not catch criminals at the scene of crime, right? Technically, you know, video streaming, video analytics, like a ton of this stuff is actually like technology is not the barrier anymore. Technology has been applied to do many of these things in different industries. And so if you think about the world's biggest problems, right? If you think about, say, something like a child dropping out of school, there is, you know, a ton of signals that can go into a child's position to drop out of school. And there's actually ways to start predicting what's going to make that happen and actually catch it before they drop out. Or, you know, <laughs> this seems like give the stuff before 2020, but like eradicate a disease as a bricks, right? I mean, and this, this played out in just last year and we're in the middle of a global pandemic. And honestly, like if we had caught the pandemic, sure, we're talking about the vaccine and all of that, but if we had caught the pandemic in the first or the second day of the pandemic breaking out and we had just done isolation in the most effective way possible, maybe we wouldn't have been in this global pandemic situation, right? And it's not like it's not possible. It is totally possible. We implemented a lot of this, you know, looking backwards today because now it's actually a real problem that, you know, a global pandemic can cause all this chaos, right? If you can take those and actually start implementing them in a forward-looking way, like what could that do for the world? So I think that's the way I think about it. I think any big human problem that the world has, data can play a really, really important role in solving that problem if only we execute it the right way and at the right time. Yeah, for sure. Social Corp is like, so as a data for good company. And I'm just curious, like, how to see the state of data for good? Like, what are some of the initiatives that you're most excited about in the next upcoming years of, of data for good? How's that going to look like for our society? So I think it's still really early. Uh, the biggest challenge with data for good is actually the biggest challenge for most of the world from a data practitioner perspective, which is the data. I think most of the world outside of the big tech companies are still struggling and grappling with getting their data together in a way that they can actually start driving insights. This becomes even harder from a data for good kind of scenario because there is no one, right? Like who in the world is responsible? Like in a company, 
there is somebody responsible for ensuring that users don't churn in a country who is responsible for ensuring that a kid dropped out of school and maybe you know the kid didn't drop out of school because of education maybe the kid dropped out of school because of you know because they had to you know their parents got them to go work in the agricultural fields because they needed money or because you know there were no girl toilets which actually goes into like sanitation and so the minute a girl hits her menstrual cycle she actually needs to drop right there are all these reasons for a girl a kid dropping out of school which actually might have nothing to do with the education system so then who goes fix it so i think that's the biggest challenge that the entire community is grappling with mm-hmm. and i think we're starting to see hopefully initiatives that bring some of this together so at you know at social facts we drove some of this so for example with the united nations there was an initiative to bring together data about the sustainable development goals from a ton of different places so that you actually have the ability to start saying okay you know how are all these things interlinked right like how is how is your education goal linked to your you know your goal on economic empowerment for example you know we did this with the india's national data platform where we actually brought together data from you know i think 42 different national ministries every single team in the social space to actually start you know getting granular insights that you know of all these interconnected things uh, so we drove some of this i think the question is how do we do this at world scale and how do we do this at the pace that the world needs yeah thanks for sharing those uh, insights you mentioned that you know the biggest challenge of data for initiatives are collecting the right data and where that right so while working on last year data projects at social cops your team experienced a couple of challenges that any typical data teams are going to face and your team decided to incubate an internal tool to foster more effective collaboration these tools you know, later became atlan which was launched still in July 2019 so can you discuss some of those diverse challenges for data teams and furthermore like how did your internal tools address such complexity yeah so you know i was telling you at social crops our model was a pre-built data team for our customers right and that's where i learned everything that i learned about building and running data teams and these teams are the most complex teams that exist in the org fabric right if you want a data project to be successful you need an analyst an engineer a business consultant you know machine learning researcher like all these diverse people need to come together and collaborate effectively to make a project successful and all these people have their own different tooling preferences and their own skill sets and almost their own way of working and what that meant for us on a day to day basis was just a lot of chaos like as soon as we hit some scale i remember there was this one quarter where we went from analyzing data for 2 million people to suddenly 500 million people and things broke left right and center our slack channels are filled with messages right from what does this column name mean or someone would message and say can i actually use this final clean version of this data set i still remember this one time where one of the cabinet ministers of india called me at 8 in the morning and he said to kalpa the number on this dashboard is broken mm-hmm. and i was like oh my god <laughs> and i open up my laptop and there's a 2x spike in a day and so clearly something's wrong but there was nothing i could do at that point so i said sir i'll call you back and then i called my project manager who called my analysts who called my engineer who pulled out audit logs but he couldn't troubleshoot it because he didn't know what the variables meant like we took 8 hours and four people just to figure out what went wrong and that is the day in a life of a data practitioner today right like i mean we were spending 50 60% of our time dealing with issues like this and we sort of got to this breaking point where we realized we just couldn't continue to scale like that and so we actually started building out an internal tool for ourselves and and the fundamental thesis here is if you think about all of the problems i talked about 
they aren't actually technology problems as much as they were human collaboration problems and that's the lens that we took over a couple of years we built tooling that made our data team about six times more agile we went on to do things like build india's national data platform which the prime minister himself uses and stuff like that but what's really cool about that project was that it was built by an eight member team start to finish in 12 months probably one of the fastest of its kind and out of those eight members four of those people had never pushed a line of code to production mm. and i think that's sort of when we realized that if you're able to help you know and we've run data projects that were successful and that's failed and all of that right like i mean so many data projects fail because your team can't come together and work together effectively and things like that and i think that's when we realized if we take these tools and make this available to other data teams around the world if we just made them like you know maybe twice as fast what could that do to the world right and i think that's actually how atlan was born yeah absolutely that's a very interesting anecdote is that it was a team created this too within the year and they addressed the challenges for the whole organization right cuz kind of going back to that period when this it was a team is trying to to be this too right on a tactical day to day basis do they talk with like their college and try to understand their pain point and figure that out i'm just trying to understand like you know how did they go from like 0 to 1 by building these tools just to understand like is the question about how the eight member team built india's national data platform or is the question about how we built atlan in dondi in the in the company the former i mean it was a classic data project right so we had data analysts we had research associates we had some data engineers we had a project manager we had on and off some devops folks so it's like a classic data project i mean the thing to realize with the data project is that so you lose time and context in everything that you do right so let's pick something as simple as you get a ton of data and you don't know what the column names mean mm-hmm. uh, and you don't know if you if you have to create a metric on a final dashboard you don't know which of the data sets you should manipulate in what way to actually create it now the minute it's possible so what that means is there's a there's a bottleneck right so only experienced people who have all of that context that they have gained over two or three years can actually work on the project effectively the minute you take that out of the process the minute it's actually possible like if you think about engineering right like when you onboard an engineer to a team you just share a link to a github repo it has your code your documentation your revisions everything that you need like an engineer can get started like you know in a couple of days but why not with a data project that's just not possible mm-hmm. so starting from things like that which is why like it was possible for us to actually have people who had not pushed a line of code of, to production before to actually start coming in and working on projects and being productive almost from day zero because all of that context was available in a very very easily consumable way for end users right so starting from things like that to you know other things like when things break like the journey from building to productionizing things break like dozens of times in that process for a data practitioner right what that means is you're losing a ton of time because you're trying to figure out what went wrong so let's say firstly nobody knows it went wrong then you're you know in a some user is actually looking at a dashboard and they go like this number doesn't look right that's where it stops and then they message someone and then that person messages the analyst and the analyst looks at it and says yeah like something's wrong but i can't figure out why so i need to message the engineer and then they pull out audit logs like it's a complicated process it takes a ton of time you take that away and you actually make it possible first for you to get alerts when things break proactively two when things break 
make it possible for you to visually see oh this is the red green yellow this is the point that something broke or something changed and that's really where you know ecosystems like how does data quality and you know data lineage and all of those things available for a end user the minute you start doing things like that what that means is that suddenly the analyst and the engineer are working together to solve a problem it's not the analyst saying oh my god like you know data engineering messed up because they messed up the pipeline the reality is that these are human systems the interesting thing about a data team is that nobody knows what the other person is doing which is very very different from any other team that exists right think of a consulting team at mckinsey it is basically a junior analyst who turns into a consultant who turns into an engagement manager so the engagement manager knows what the analyst is doing sales teams very similar dna every other team that exists in the world very very similar dna you start as a junior member you sort of you know learn, like there are nuances obviously right but it's still a relatively similar profession that is not the case with the data team a data analyst is fundamentally different from a data engineer so you won't have any other way of building a successful project like a data analyst can't say that i'll just go do the data engineer's work or i'll just go into the pipeline and see what broke that's just not possible and the data engineer can't say that oh like i'll just go write a sql query and figure out like how to fix this dashboard like that's not possible and because of that this team needs trust much more than any other team that's created and when is trust created trust is created when there's transparency trust is created when there's visibility trust is created when people don't have to ping somebody and say why is this broken and instead are proactively able to see and feel and then so you take out the human from the equation and you make things very transparent and so i think that's the dna of the team so when you are able to create systems that fundamentally alter that culture in the team where you're creating systems of trust fundamentally then the team changes and suddenly the team is working together very very effectively the team is trying to solve problems together that's the magic we were able to see right that's why the team was six times more agile than you know when we started diverse people who'd come together trust each other and collaborate really effectively Yeah, totally. Thanks for sharing the land. I really like how you really emphasize on the human needs, and you talk about like promise, not technology. Right? It's really collaboration between humans, and even the fact that Alan got inspired as, as like GitHub engineering or Figma for design, like illustrate that idea, but to the enable communication collaboration ish between people in the team. I just think it's really a fresh perspective on how we can build better products that serve a fundamental uh, users' needs. Now, so uh, let's let's dig a bit deeper into a, a couple of the technical problems that the Atlan platform is built to solve, and you can allude to it a little bit throughout the past answers. But uh, we will uh, go into uh, some some extra details. Your team codifies some of the learnings of what makes that team successful into a document called the Data Ops Cultural Code. So, would you mind kind of dissecting a couple of the principles included in that cultural code? So, I mean, the way we thought about this was, I mean, if you think about data teams, you want data teams to be successful. It all comes down to creating a successful culture in the team, right? And I think. across all of our projects the successes the failures we try to sort of codify what we saw as the key to creating a successful data team i touched on some of these already in in what we talked about right so i talked about collaboration and being key right data teams are always going to be diverse like we call this at ashen the humans of data because very diverse people 22 different kinds of personas all have their own skill sets including preferences and dna and so you need to embrace the diversity because a analyst is not solving a problem without an engineer you need all these skill sets around the table so you have to create a mechanism for effective collaboration 
And I think as we think about this, you know, we think about, you know, creating systems of trust. How do you ensure that everybody's work is accessible and discoverable so that there's no tool silos, right? So this, I think, amplifies itself a lot in the remote world. If I need to wait 24 hours after I ping someone on Slack to figure out, you know, where a dashboard is or where a report is, like it's just, you know, creating a ton of, you know, inefficiency, right? Creating transparency and data pipelines and deviant. So, you know, stuff like that, monitoring alert systems. So how do you, cre- how do you systematically create systems of trust in the team? Figure out where trust might break and just find a way to actually say, okay, no, we're going to create a high trust environment. Agility is another core part of this, right? Reducing dependencies, I think, is a very, very key aspect of this. You know, there's a ton of dependencies because of this diversity. And dependencies lead to frustration. That's just the fundamental human nature of the way people work, right? So foundational activities, be it, you know, things like documentation first cultures or, you know, automate whatever is repetitive, right? Do things like that to actually reduce dependencies between these diverse users. And this is, I think, not just the data team. This is also the dependency between the business and the data team, like the business, product managers, and so on and so on. Like, they should not be dependent on a data team either, right? So figure out ways to like sort of minimize that. So I think those are some key principles. As we think about how to make those key principles, I think another element, and we at Athlean sort of subscribe to this a lot, is this concept of a data asset. You know, if you think about data assets, like it used to be just your tables, but today it's your tables and your dashboards and your models and your pipelines and your code and your DBT models and all of that. And they should all be treated and maintained like assets. What does it mean for something to fundamentally be an asset, right? Obviously, let's pick other assets, right? Let's say financial assets. For financial assets, you actually have an inventory of your data assets, uh, of your assets, right? I mean, companies have inventories of furniture, Furniture is an asset, right? As for your balance sheet. Companies have inventories of your furniture, but companies don't have an inventory of their data. It is, you know, it's ridiculous, right? So starting there, but, you know, assets should be maintained like they're an asset. What does it mean to maintain an asset like it's an asset? What does it mean? Assets should be reusable. Like it's not an asset if you can't reuse it, right? So how do you create, again, systems that allow for some of that to happen? And I think the final thing that I'll touch on, and I think people miss this, all the time is the importance of user experience. I think there was a team at Airbnb that said this. I think they said, you know, designing the interface and the user experience of a data tool should not be an afterthought. Now, I know user experience in general is important in in software, but in data teams, because of the sheer diversity, it becomes a lot more important. Uh, You have to realize that a data engineer is probably always only going to interact with your tooling through a API or an ID. And a business user wants a really, really intuitive, you know, UI. And that's just the reality. So knowing that that's the reality, how do you build a user experience that users love to adopt and will adopt as a part of that data? And so I think that needs to become front and center and not an afterthought as you think about data culture and the tools that will enable your data culture. Yeah, I totally agree with that last part. You know, as we move towards like the... uh consumerization of enterprise analytics, right? Like UX become more and more of an important aspect to focus on. Yeah, you mentioned data as an asset and it's very important to keep track of inventory of data assets, right? And that kind of lends itself very well into my next question, which is uh, this notion of um, data catalog. Basically, you wrote this blog post on this idea of data catalog 3.0 earlier this year, and it covers the evolution of metadata management as well as the four characteristics of a modern data catalog. 
can you unpack some of the key ideas as explained in that blog post? Yeah, so I mean, I think, you know, to begin with, in that blog, I talked about the evolution of metadata management as an ecosystem, right? It's, it's not a new ecosystem. It's existed since the 1990s. You know, and I think about, you know, the 1.2 era, which is, you know, fundamentally IT teams as users and what that meant for them. You know, the SEC 2.0 era, which I think was somewhere in the 2010s, where you had a very small group of data users inside an organization. And I think sort of fast forward that to today, what does a data catalog actually mean, right? And so in traditional terms, you know, a data catalog has basically been a place which is an inventory for your data. But the reality is that's not the world we live in anymore, right? And, and there's a reason to that. So let's say a traditional data catalog is a data catalog that A takes a ton of time to implement, is an inventory for your data. Often the data is going to get stale because, you know, no one's updating it. It's used by a small set of users, typically your data keywords as a role created in large enterprise organizations. And you fast forward that world into today. If you think about sort of what has changed in the world, today data assets are more than just tables. So fundamentally, you know, you're not talking about the data catalog. You're talking about a, you know, something that is actually cataloging or bringing together all your data assets inside an organization, right? So, you know, in an ideal case, you know, as you think about discovery, it's not just about finding your table anymore. It's about finding your code and your SQL queries and your models and all of those things, right? And so as you think about metadata management, the way that that evolves, it needs to actually be a lot more holistic than what it used to be just even a few years ago. The second is this world that we live in today, right? Like today, metadata itself is sort of becoming a sense, you know, in a sense, big data. There is tons and tons of metadata getting generated. Second, compute is cheaper than it ever has been before. And, you know, fundamentally, because of what has happened with tooling in the modern data stack ecosystem, let's pick Snowflake. Today, you can actually parse through the SQL code and query logs from Snowflake and actually automatically, say, create column level lineage and relationships and say, how are all my columns and tables related to each other? You can figure out what your most popular data assets are. You can even potentially deduce who created the table and who's the owner of the table, right? Like there's a ton of context that you can create about a data asset without a single human being involved. And so, you know, what does that really mean or look like? And I think another key aspect that we've tried to touch on is, you know, this idea that we call at Athlean embedded collaboration. We truly believe that the real solution in this space is going to look way closer to a Figma or a GitHub. It's going to use principles of what the modern workplace is, right? Like, you know, Notion, Superhuman, and bring that into the world of data, you know? And what that means is it's going to be a ton of microflows and not macroflows. It's going to be things like, let's say I request access to a data asset. All I need to do, just like on Google Docs, I get a link. I click request access, someone gets a message on Slack, they approve it, reject it. It should be that simple. It's not like this is not solved. We have solved this problem with documents and other ecosystems, right? It should be solvable for data. Or, you know, how do you create these very, very deep collaborative workflows for a data user so that the data user is not wasting their time doing a ton of, like, context switching between five different tools and can actually just do their job, which is work with data and hopefully drive better decisions through the data. Right? So that's the way we think about this concept of data catalog 3.0 as sort of that new age solution for the modern data stack. 
Definitely, yeah. I think that, that sounds like what Atlan is, is striving towards to become. Now, I, I love the idea of embedded collaboration because it's um, very fostered that the system of trust, right? One of the cultural code that you um, brought up earlier in, in the previous question. And talking about trust, I think my next question is about data quality. And this is quite important because good data quality enable teams to build trust in their data. So Atlan provides a couple of capabilities uh, such as data quality profiling and uh, automated lineage. In your opinion, what are some of the key characteristics of data quality? And uh, what are some of the strong practices to ensure data quality and just maintain high quality data assets? Yeah. The way we think about data quality, it's almost in three different steps, right? The first is detection. The second is prevention. And the third is cure. Detection is figuring out that you have a data quality issue in the first place. That's where most of the industry is today, right? That's where things like data quality profiling. So you can look at a data set and figure out you know, there's 10% more missing values than there normally should be. Or, you know, there's suddenly a spike in my data and there shouldn't be a spike. That's just figuring out that or detecting that there's a data quality problem. The next phase of it really moves to saying, okay, how can I prevent this issue? That's where you're actually starting to see a ton of integration between data quality and actual pipelining and orchestration engines, right? So, that's where, you know, almost thinking about the concept of writing unit tests for your pipelines. That's really where that sort of second phase of prevention is coming. So hopefully if you've detected that there's a problem, you're also preventing the problem before it actually becomes a real problem. Mm-hmm. And I think the third problem is really cure, right? And, and the third stage is cure. How do you fix a problem once you know that there's a problem? And I think that's where, you know, data quality as an ecosystem plays really well with with other ecosystems like data prep, I think it's really early. I don't think there's really been any material innovation in that space yet. So it's very, very early in figuring out what that's going to look like. So I think that's the broader gamuts of data quality. Now, as with everything else, I think there's depth in each of these things, right? So that's really where you say, okay, let's go from, you know, level one to level two to level three. Mm-hmm. And the way I think about that is let's pick, I talked about detection. Right? There's basic detection. Detecting missing values is pretty basic. Anomaly detection, if you truly apply machine learning algorithms to figure out on the basis of the company's data. And this really becomes real when the algorithm knows that, you know, typically in June, because it's summer, there is a spike of sales of ice creams. So because there's a spike, I'm not going to tell you that there's an anomaly in your data because it's normal for you to see this. That's why seasonality right that's when you know things like anomaly detection things like that really come of age and you'll see that at every stage of of this entire these three stages right like which is how do you take something where a human is setting something up second it's automated and the third the machine itself is telling you how to do this so i think that's the broad framework i think that i think about data quality i think you know to answer your question on practices and strong practices to ensure data quality and maintain high quality data 80% of it is actually solvable through 20% of work. I know there's a ton of work that's happening in anomaly detection and all these other things, but that's not where 80% of the problem is for most teams out there in the world. So, you know, we're very excited about ecosystems like Great Expectations, which just make it easy for you to write a unit test as a part of your pipeline. We're very excited about ecosystems that just, for example, at Atlin, we auto-profile your data quality and allow you to like just do basic alerts and monitoring on top of that, right? Allow a business user to write a business rule on top of it. 
that's not rocket science you don't need like deep machine learning to do that you just need tools that work on high scale data and i think that's where you know i would say a key part of this is just teams starting to adopt this realize this is a problem start measuring the quality of your data and start working towards getting better thank you for sharing that level framework right yeah detection prevention and coring so Kind of related to that topic is data governance. Because I think if you talk about lineage, then governance also is a topic that lends itself pretty well to, to our conversation. Atlan provides a couple of capabilities, including auto PII classification and granular access control. So, uh, you know, what are some of the challenges that organizations usually face when starting their data governance initiatives? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's very specific to the organization. The way I think about it, there are two kinds of organizations in the world. There is a traditional or relatively traditional organizations where governance has existed as a concept. So, you know, there's a governance office, there's a governance council, there's all these things that governance was meant to be in the last decade, right? And then there's another kind of organization where actually governance is not the starting point. You know, making sense of your data and democratize your data is the starting point. And then those teams basically end up realizing as soon as they hit a little bit of scale that they're slowing down, adding a new member to their team is not actually meaning that the team is more productive because they're losing a ton of time because they don't have process and they don't have trust in their data and they don't have a, a, like a, some of these practices built out, right? The first bucket is struggling because they have great governance practices, but no one's using their data. And so I think uh, in, it's an interesting tug of war. And I think Governance itself is being redefined in the world. I think it's still very early, but I don't think governance, data governance, the way data, like data governance, it seems like a risk. It seems like something that creates, you know, makes you stop, right? It makes you less agile. Like that's how the, that's what the word sounds like, but it should not be. Like great data governance, basically, what does data governance mean? Data governance means that you have processes uh, and a foundation in place that helps your team go faster. That's what governance should become. Mm-hmm. And I think we're in the wake of governance starting to get recreated into hopefully what will be a new practice, especially created by these new age teams, mm-hmm. where the start of governance is not compliance. The start of governance is actually making teams more agile and helping companies become more data-driven. And I think as you do that, what is that 2.0 structure for governance going to look like? How can governance be an offense strategy rather than a defense strategy? I think those are all questions that the industry is still grappling with. Honestly, you know, the good thing is no one's figured this out. So like, if you're thinking about this as a problem, that's great. I think I had a customer who who once said this, you know, they were like, world peace and data governance. (laughs) The reality is that, you know, no one's figured this out in the world. It's still very early. And so I think as an industry and a broader community, we all need to be sharing best case practices and working together to actually create standards to help the next set of organizations, which is 99% of the organizations actually solve this in the next phase of what data is going to become in the world. Yeah, sure. Thanks for sharing perspective. Just a quick question. I don't know, it might be relevant to throw it here, but what do you think is the relationship between data governance and things like data privacy and data security? Is there a like, close connection between those two and and how to come out in practice? Yeah. So data governance, I think is, it's almost like a discipline, right? What does data governance mean? It means systems, people, processes, bring it together in a way that it all operates effectively. And I think as a part of this, you have, I think security and privacy is one aspect of this. 
access control on your data is one aspect of this. Data discovery and classification is another aspect of this. Context on your data, metadata, like that's an aspect of this. So I think all of these, you know, collaboration is an aspect of this. I think all of these things sort of fall into that broader discipline of what data governance should mean. Now, I think I caveat this with what data governance should mean. If you've really studied literature of what data governance is meant to be and how you really define data governance and things like that, you will realize that data governance is not a risk function. It's not a compliance function. It was actually built out as a way to create trust in data assets. It's a pretty forward-thinking practice. Mm -hmm. The unfortunate reality is that the only places that data governance has been implemented largely has been from a risk or a compliance perspective. And a large part of that was because a very large part of the world did not believe in being data uh, right? The first set of companies that were created in the world that won because of data-driven are being created today. Right? The Googles and the Netflixes of the world did not exist even 20 years ago. And so now I think people are realizing that being data-driven is a competitive advantage. And then you're you know, starting to create data teams. And then you're realizing that, oh my God, I need to build practices to make this team more agile. So because of that, we're starting to see some of the first sets of creation of data governance as an offense strategy rather than a defense strategy. It's still very early in the ecosystem, but you know, it is it is a broader practice and should definitely contain several of these ecosystems, including data privacy and security. Yeah, definitely. Stepping away from these specific components, right? I want to probe your thoughts about the modern data stack. Your recent blog post about modern data platforms deconstruct their building blocks that include ingestion, storage, processing, transformation, BI and analytics, catalogs, privacy and governance. In your opinion, what building blocks in the stacks are still underinvested and challenging for data practitioners? We talk about like governance, so maybe something else as well. Yeah. Sure, sure, absolutely. So I think A, everything is underinvested. Like we are still at like a very early stage of what the ideal tooling stack of a data team should look like. Now the starting parts of the stack, just because of where they sit, Right, so let's say data ingestion, cloud data warehouses, or BI. Just because of the very nature of the fact that, like that's how companies started on the modern data stack. You need to have a cloud data warehouse if you need to be on a modern data stack. You need to have a BI tool, right? Like that's what the business wants. That's what the business pays for, right? So because of the sheer fact that, so if you think about the biggest companies that have been built in this space, you'd actually see 2012 Amazon Redshift launched. That was the start of the entire ecosystem in some ways. And you know there was a ton of innovation, Snowflake happened, there was a ton of innovation. And then growth, many of these companies actually really started taking off in what, 2016, approximately around that time. And that's really when like, you know, I think Snowflake had like, you know, what, 100 customers or something at that point in time. And you know, now they're like 3,500 customers or something in like three years, right? And so I think a lot of the growth and the innovation, if you see in the data ingestion space, let's say five strand, like a ton of that growth has actually been in just the last couple of years. And so you'll see that I think there's a little bit more maturity in, I would say, the storage and the processing layers, the ingestion and the BI layers than there is on any of the other aspects of the stack. So this is data privacy, access governance, cataloging governance, you know, data science, I think is still very, very early and underinvested. Data transformation has just started, like I think, you know, with DBT and some of these things, I think they're a little further ahead than data catalog, like the, you know, the stuff that I just mentioned, but they're still further behind than 
you know, ingestion, data warehousing, and BI. So I think that's where we are ecosystem-wise. I think the reality is, though, that the ecosystem is going to continue to see like the next stage of innovation. So let's say BI, like I think the way, and, you know, we'll see how this plays out, you know, in five years, but there will continue to be more and more innovation, right? So I think in some of these spaces, the first winner has been created. In BI, maybe you'd say it's Looker. In the modern data stack, in cloud data warehouses, you'll see it's Snowflake. I think that's the first winner in the space. But the space is so early that this is going to be an industry for like the next 20, 30, 40 years, right? And because of that, I think they're already the second set of winners that have started getting created, right? Like in, within five years, you already have, you know, BI notebooks that are disrupting BI. And you already have like, you know, what is the future of data exploration look like? Or you have like, what is the next gen data warehouse? And what does that look like? And so I think we're already starting there in the second wave of innovation. And in some of the underinvested parts, we're starting with the first wave of innovation. Yeah, definitely. I think you mentioned a pretty strong point. Like there's already clear winner that some of these building blocks, but you know, there's it's still a blue ocean, right? So and then small more and more vendors can come in and collaborate and, and take advantage of the market and the export market at this point. And in general, like from what I see, it seems like data two in general are very good at integrating with each other, you know, try to be interoperable, right? Play with each other. It seems to be a very positive sum games. Just out of curiosity, like does Atlan have any strategy with integration with, with other part of the stack? And I know that you guys have some upcoming webinars with Snowflake, for example. So what are some of your thoughts in, in terms of collaboration with other tools, other vendors across the stack? Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, Atlin, we basically create like a virtual hub across all of your data assets, right? So what that means is that we are very well, like as a collaboration layer, we're very well integrated with the existing stack in some ways, right? So we already integrate very, very well into data warehouse ecosystems like say Snowflake or Redshift or BigQuery, data lake ecosystems like S3, Starburst, Presto, that entire ecosystem. BI tools, so Looker, Tableau, Power BI, Siphons. And we also integrate pretty well into like the orchestration layer stack. So we have a native plugin into Airflow. We integrate natively into Slack and Microsoft Teams. So, you know, we are a collaborative play, right? So what that means is that we uh, fundamentally open platform built on open APIs, very, very easy to build out new integrations. Sometimes customers can build out their own integrations into Atlan if they need. And we are, you know, we work very, very well with basically the modern data stack to help solve problems for customers. In February, you wrote this article, basically predict some of the five top trends for chip data officers to watch out for in 2021. A couple of these, including things that we already discussed, like the modern data stack, go mainstream, or the evolution of metadata management. But uh, yeah, can you briefly recap some of the trends for the listeners? I'll maybe talk about some of the ones that we haven't touched on yet, right? I think... One interesting trend that we're seeing, and I think the world is divided on this, is this convergence of data lakes and warehouses in some ways, right? Traditionally, you know, there's been data warehouses that have been used more for analytics purposes, data lakes that have been used for more data science and operational kind of use cases. So they've been traditionally operating as different ecosystems. What we're starting to see now is that your data lake players are starting to move closer to the warehouse ecosystem. So let's say Databricks recently launched you know, the ability to actually run SQL analytics, right? Or, and they introduced this concept called the data lake house, which actually brings a lot of the advantages of a warehouse kind of ecosystem, right? Like asset transactions and things like that to a data lake first kind of ecosystem. On the other hand, you see data warehouse kind of players 
actually adding in a ton of functionality to enable data science use cases. What we don't know is how is this going to play out in the next five years? Uh, today, there is still a sufficient differentiation between the two, right? And so we do see customers with hybrid architectures even today. The question is, you know, as we think about the next three, four, five years of innovation, will customers choose one architectural choice? Will data lakes and warehouses just converge to one, you know, one central storage and processing layer? I think that's something that just, I guess, an open question, but a trend that is definitely starting to get created. Another interesting one, and this is one of my favorite points, actually, as I track the data team ecosystem, is roles inside teams. I think something I spend a ton of time thinking about is how do you structure data teams so that your data team can be effective. We're starting to see, I think, the emergence of this one role that I'm particularly excited about, which is the data platform leader. And so companies are increasingly starting to realize that uh, their data teams are only going to be successful if there's somebody owning the data platform that enables this data team. They're starting to getting data platform teams are becoming a reality. You know, people are starting to get called the director of data platform. And I think the interesting thing about them, which is slightly different from what used to be called data warehousing or data engineering or things like that, is that the ownership for this person is end user adoption. So their, their KPI is not building the stack. Their KPI is end users driving value of the platform. Now, this could be Right, some things that we see, you know, self-service as a use case, helping, you know, non-technical users start being able to work with data without needing a data team. This could also be agility for the data team, right, and productivity for the data team. But it's user-centric and not tech stack-centric. And I think that's something that I'm very excited about. I think, it, you know, if this gets executed the right way, you know, it's probably going to help data teams by leaps and bounds. Fabulous. Yeah, thanks for sharing those. Yeah, we talk a lot about like state of data in general, but uh, let's take off your data head and put on your father head. Atlan raised an approximate $5 million seed round back in 2019 from Sequoia Search, what a great ventures and uh, other angels. What fundraising advice could you give for fathers who are seeking the right investors for the startups? So one, fundraising is not the goal or the milestone. It is a necessary evil in some cases that you need to do to build your company. Some companies don't need to be built as venture-backed startups. And if they don't need to, if you can build a successful, profitable business, you know, there is a lot of respect and pride in that. So I think, you know, I think we as an industry talk way too much about how much money a company has raised and way too little about real milestones like customer love and retention and, you know, impact that companies have in the world. So, you know, as an entrepreneur, found your company because you want to solve a problem, not because you want to raise money. It's very hard to wear that hat because, you know, as a society, we tend to hype up kind of things. Um, so I think starting there, like fundraising is a strategy. It's not an end goal. I think second from there, continue to remember that you are building something amazing in the world. You are the one who is burning the midnight oil and you are the one who is working 18 hour days and you are the one who is you know spending weekends and all of that building something up and making something that doesn't exist come to life and so every single person who works with you is lucky to work with you and uh, it might not feel that way all the time but you know when it comes to hiring when it comes to investors like make sure that you remember that and so what that means is pick 
who you work with very wisely. These are people that will be with you for, you know, your probably like a good part of your life, right? I mean, any company takes 10 years to build at least, right? Average time frame, maybe longer. So, you know, you're going to spend a ton of time with this person. So make sure that you pick people that you trust and you value. And, you know, I think that means very different things to very different people. Right. So maybe what, you know, I value might be very different from what somebody else values. And so you as you know, founders need to understand what is it that matters to you. And then, you know, reference check the shit out of people, right? Speak like before you take someone's money, like speak to as many references as you can. Make sure that you, you know, you really understand how is this person going to be in the bad times because you are going to have bad times. Uh, every company has bad times. A lot of, uh, of what you want to do is surround yourself with people who are not just going to be with you in the good times, but also the bad. So, yeah, so that's I, I'm not an expert in fundraising in any way. I've also run a bootstrap company. You know, that was a company that, 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 that did really well. You know, we were insanely profitable. And I think over time, you realize, I think as a second time founder, I think I've gone through enough cycles to realize, I guess, just what to optimize for. So I hope that helps. <laughs> for sure, yeah. I was doing your research on your profile and you had this tweet on yesterday that I read is like just two type data startups, one that customer talk about and one that investors talk about, right? Yeah. We should always try to be the former. But yeah, just, just kind of talk about like, what are some of the factors that made you and Environ chose WaterBridge and Instagram search? What about them that resonate with Atlan's strategic goal? Yeah, so I think a ton of it came down to the people more than anything else, right? I think we spent a ton of time with the people you know, we spoke to a lot of their founders and I think it matters a lot. Like I remember when we were talking to one of the founders that our partner at Sequoia had invested in, I think the founder said, you know, like do whatever you can to get him on board. Even if you can't take money from Sequoia, get him on board personally, <laughs> right? It's valuable. Founders don't say that. Like founders don't say that with all that excitement about a person if it's not true, right? So I think uh, a ton of it just came down to I think for us, it was a function of, you know, what we wanted to do. Early stage investors also need to be okay with the uncertainty, right? So you need to believe in the broader vision, you need to believe in the broader team. There's going to be a ton of pivots. Like, so I think just realizing that uh, what was our first investor, like they invested in us before there was a product, <laughs> before we really knew what we were going to do, right? We're just like, we're going to build this thing from these internal tools that you know, we built. At, you know, so I think, you know, knowing that they can believe in you through, through that, and making sure that if they're entrepreneurs say great things about them, I think that's what has been the North Star for Varun and me in choosing the kind of partners that we want to work with. Absolutely. So we talked about uh, fundraising. Next one, discuss community engagement. To actively engage with the broader data community, Atlan has been conducting the Human Data interview series, been starting to host an upcoming uh, building a modern data platform webinar series and also building the Atlan Labs, which is a home for a variety of open source projects and data and experiment built by the internal teams. How effective have these outreach initiatives been to drive customer awareness and adoption of the platform? Great question. So interestingly, a lot of what you mentioned actually for us was not a part of our customer awareness or our adoption strategy. We have other sources for like we have traditional marketing teams for demand generation and things like that. A lot of what we do for the community is truly as we think about the community, our mission is to help data teams do their lives best. It's to help, you know, the humans of data be, you know, more productive, better together. That's our mission as a company. Sure, one of the things we do is we build that, that and product, and that's a very core part of us getting to that mission, right? Uh, but that's not the only thing. 
you know, teams need the ability to learn from each other. You know, we, you talked about the humans of data blog, something we try and do is try and unpack the structure of data teams and the DNA of data teams, the culture of data teams. Those are things that we try and unpack. We do a ton of open source stuff, you know, at and labs, as you talked about. And so for us, it is, you know, we, we truly do it a little bit as sort of the furtherance of the broader mission. So in fact, many of these are actually personal projects. You'll see that open source stuff is actually personal projects that folks in our team have picked up and pushed out for the broader community in some ways. So yeah, I mean, it, it is not a strategy. Now, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing and how that will play out. It definitely is harder because, you know, as a company, as a startup, you're always resource crunch. So it, a lot of it also depends on how actively the team works towards, just, you know, pushing through and, and doing some of those things for the broader community. That's just how it has evolved. I think that was a noble mission. I think, I believe like, you know, Atlanta also, like I think pre-pandemic, you guys host like a bunch of meetups, right? Meetups for the larger community and partner with different communities like Pilates Daily or Google Cloud Developer to raise awareness. I think exposure and awareness has become a byproduct of the good intention, right? Yeah. Hiring is another critical responsibility of any early stage startup founder. You wrote this fascinating blog post back in 2018 that brought up the concept of Uh, people as a moat to attract, engage, and grow top talent as inspired by the McKinsey Advantage. How has this concept manifested itself within Atlanta's talent team? Yeah, great question. So I was fascinated. Like at, at one point we were like, you know, we realized if we had to build out Atlanta, a very core part of building an amazing experience for agents around the world is building an amazing team. So we spent a ton of time I remember taking on almost like a personal mission project to say, you know, like, what is it going to take to build a great team? Like, what are companies that have endured? And the reality is that actually the lessons of companies that have endured, many of them are not the big tech companies because unfortunately they haven't lasted that long, right? Like they've lasted 20 years. They've done a great job in those 20 years, but they've just lasted 20 years. The real great companies have lasted hundreds of years. And so, you know, I started doing like a ton of research about, you know, and reading books and, you know, things like that. And I stumbled on this fascinating books about McKinsey. And, you know, McKinsey is just a fascinating firm if you think about them as a firm, right? You know, you'll see some of the world's leading CEOs come from this firm. They were part of Enron, came away unscathed. You know, people go to McKinsey, people leave McKinsey, people go to new companies and bring McKinsey into that company. Like, it's just amazing. It's fascinating what they've been able to create. And you'll actually realize that, you know, if you go back to McKinsey's story, like 1930s, when the company started or the firm started to be, you know, accurate, they actually did some very interesting things. So I remember, so there's actually a really nice case study about how they partnered with Harvard Business School back then to drive the case curriculum and almost create the MBA. Like the MBA was not like, and I think this is something that we today do not realize, right? But It was a core part of McKinsey's talent strategy, the evangelism around the MBA. A lot of that was done by McKinsey and Howard Business School together. And then people started saying, okay, I want to go, you know, become an MBA. And then, you know, where do the best MBAs go work? They go work at McKinsey. <laughs> and, you know, where do the best companies hire people for management roles? They hire from McKinsey and Howard. And so I think they just created this like beautiful loop. And I think that's something that I spent time thinking about is like, Can you create that kind of a loop for a company or an enduring company, right? Where the best talent wants to come work with you. The best talent has an amazing journey and they grow exponentially when they work with you. And then when they leave, they become alumni and they still 
are part of contributing to the overall company's ecosystem and success. So I think that's where the whole thing got inspired from. And then I got thinking, and in some ways, this is actually about thinking about talent the way you would think about SaaS products. So HubSpot talks about this concept of a flywheel, right? Like everything centered around the customer, you know, so you, you measure inbound, but you also measure NPS and you measure like your entire customer journey is basically centered around this one unit of a customer. Why can you not th- think about like an employee the same way? And I think that's sort of is what sort of laid the foundation of the way we think about talent at Atlin. And, and honestly, we haven't like implemented all of this, right? Like this is still very much... We want to get there, but we're a startup. So, <laughs> so we also have like limitations of resources, right? But in an ideal case, right? Like, you know, how do you think about that, you know, that cycle of being able to attract and bring the best to work with you? How do you build the best journey for them when they're with the company? How do they grow? How do they become alumni and start referring back people who come to work with you, right? And how do you make them the best alumni in the world? Like people go work, today people go work at McKinsey like so many people that I know who've gone work with McKinsey have said, I saw this amazing CEO that I was inspired by. And I looked at their career and I saw that they started at McKinsey. And so I went and worked with McKinsey, right? So the more you can do that, the more chances are that you're going to build a sort of moat through people. I'm sure to include the blog post in the show notes. You have this very cool feedback loop that shows the new team and how this different function work together. Mm-hmm. You also made that connection between how the sales team works and how the talent team can look like, right? Now, yeah. uh, as we're talking about recruiting, so Atlan has been in the process of expanding foothold into the U.S. market. What are some of the go-to-market initiatives that you are most excited about for the rest of 2021? Yeah, so I mean, you know, 80% of our customers are already from the U.S. So we've been doing really well in the U.S. market. Go-to-market for us, you know, the U.S. is a huge priority for us. We're doing a ton of things. And so what that means is we're scaling our team aggressively. We're hiring, you know, and in some ways, we're sort of hiring our founding go-to-market team, right? So until now, we spent a ton of time building product and getting product love and making sure that users love the product. And luckily, that bet paid off and it seems like users love the product. And so even though we've done close to no marketing um, and we had like, you know, until three months ago, like an almost non-existent go-to-market team, you know, we've been closing customers left, right and center. We have some great customers that we're working with you know, companies, you know, big and small. And so what we're now doing is we're sort of setting the foundation of almost our founding go-to-market team, right? So we're hiring across, you know, marketing, top of funnel, content, evangelists. We're hiring customer success, which is a key priority for us. Sales, I think all of these are roles that we're hiring and building for. And so, yeah, like, you know, shameless hiring plug. If anyone's listening to this podcast and is excited about our mission, please reach out to me. Sounds like a lot of different initiatives that you, you know, your team been working on. Yeah, I'm just curious, what was like the biggest challenge you think about Atlan trying to having this starting GTN team in the US? What is something that, you know, you, you think you already experienced challenges, but it might be envisioned challenges in the future as well? What is going to be the biggest challenge in driving go-to-market in the US? Yes. That's a question. Yeah. So I think this is more of like a general, like what is going to be the biggest challenge in driving go-to-market, right? And I don't think the US is actually like, you know, a ton of like 80% of our work is in the US. So I think it's a, I mean, it is our first market more than anything else, right? The thing that's top of mind for us is to say like, what becomes a 10x growth level? We're growing pretty fast, but you know, the best companies in the world, let's pick Snowflake. Snowflake went from, I think 12 customers to 100 customers to 800 customers to 1500 customers to 3500 customers in IPO, all in six years. 
And if you think about that journey, they were like, you know, atexing and like, you know, they would like at, at a scale that is almost unbelievable. And the company did some things really, really well, right? Like there were some strategic things that they did, right? So if you study Snowflake's model there, you know, zero to 90 minutes in Snowflake, that session, you know, the $400 credit, there were a few things that Snowflake did that made that growth happen and that fueled that growth. And then they built an execution machine. And so I think the thing that we spend a ton of our time thinking about is like, what are those levers going to be for us, right? Like those levers are very different for different companies. It's different for Snowflake. It's different for Looker. We have to find our lever, right? In a category that is still very new in the modern data stack. And so that's something that we keep, you know, that's top of mind. And I think the second is just execution. I think people overvalue strategy and decisions and things like that and, and undervalue execution. 80% of it is going to come down to perseverance and execution. So how do you build an execution machine that is just going to out-execute everybody else? Totally agree. I think executing cannot be emphasized enough. <laughs> so yeah, we talk about like, you know, company's footprint in the US. They talk about like the Futo and the Arshin company back in India. So I was watching this talk that the keynote speech gave at the Pi Data Daily 2019 on the power of data science to measure the unmeasured parameters in emerging markets within India. How would you, you know, describe the state of the data community in India? So the beautiful thing is amazing talent getting created in the ecosystem. I think we, as a country, India's biggest advantage is its young population, you know, an English-speaking population that is reasonably technical to begin with, right? And um, so I think a ton of analysts, data science talent that's getting created sort of, you know, from universities every single year. So some incredibly smart talent. I think, you know, if you think about the biggest communities, like if you think about Kaggle and things like that, I think like you'd, you'd actually see a very, very large population that comes from India. The challenge we have to work towards as a broader data community is the ability to create mentorship. And the reality is that some of the most, I guess, forward data projects in the world have still been created in the big tech companies. And so how do you create ways for this amazing talent to be able to get the mentorship, the exposure, the opportunity that it takes to become world-class? That's a problem that the community, at least in the local country, needs to solve. Yeah, thanks for sharing those perspectives. You got this great tweet that I came across the other day that you said, startups are not for the weak-hearted. What are some of your top three books about entrepreneurships that have deeply impacted your startup journey? Yeah, that's a great question. So early on, I used to be a very average reader. I used to read a lot. I think one of my favorites is still The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. I think that's a very, very, like, it's almost like the Bible. Like, I would recommend it to anybody who would ever thinking about starting up. I think from there, I think the one hack that has been really helpful for me, it's been reading stories. So something I do is I read about, I think there's a Twitter story about hatching Twitter and there's a McKinsey story about the firm. There's a you know story about Uber and there's like these, you know, how Google works. And I like to read them as real stories. And I think that's helped me make up at least, you know, from the, you know to a reasonable extent, help, help me understand like, what kind of company you want to build and what kind of company you don't want to build, learning from lessons of others in some ways, right? So that's the second kind of book that I think has shaped my thinking about startups. And the third, I think, has just been some really solid execution advice, right? So, I mean, if you're, and I think this is different for every phase. So 
if you're in the customer discovery or the user discovery phase, I recommend this book called Mom Test. It's a fantastic book. It teaches you how to like ask users questions in a way that they're not going to give you biased answers. You know, if you're in the product market fit phase, there's this amazing book called Disciplined Entrepreneurship. You know, again, a fantastic framework for figuring out how to get and measure getting to product market fit. So I think that, I think there's just like a ton of books that I would recommend at, at different stages of the growth journey of the company. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'll be sure to include those in the show notes so um, listeners can have the opportunity to, to check them out. Finally, Jeb uh, received multiple entrepreneurship awards ranging from Forbes 30 under 30 to Fortune 40 under 40. I also came across this pretty amazing visualization video that describes you as a data warrior. How do this recognition means to you in the pursuit of democratizing data for the world? Sure. Uh, so firstly, I feel very thankful and grateful for the channel of recognition. I think an important thing to recognize is that, you know, I did none of this by myself, right? You know, my co-founder, my team, uh, I think we, you know, as a society tend to glorify entrepreneurs a little bit more than we need to be <laughs> glorified, right? I think we, you know, all of this is like the team effort and the ability to build you know, an amazing team that has been able to go on and do amazing things. So I think, you know, first with, you know, want to caveat it with that. I think the recognitions mean a lot to sort of us as a team, just because it's a way to just say you are doing some of the best work in the world, right? Again, the way I think about these is it's not, it's not a milestone. It's not a goal. It's not something that you glorify. You know, you do good work, it happens to you. But I think that's that's just what it is. Like, I don't think there's any other thing to it. I think the one thing that I've begun to realize is that it is also something that will hopefully inspire the next generation of companies and teams and people who believe that, you know, you can be a 21-year-old and, you know, you can still do good stuff in the world, right? And you don't you don't need a ton to be able to make an impact. So I think those are the kinds of things that I think they tend to embody. An internal phrase is like, we don't really celebrate any of this, right? So if it... If it happens, it happens. Sure, we will, uh, you know, we share it on social media, but that's where it stops. Yeah, totally. I mean, like, that part about inspiration, man. It's, it's very important, right? Uh, you talk about mentorship earlier, you know, the Indian ecosystem. You cannot be what you can see, right? Your story about, like, starting startups, like, right out of college and kind of evolve into so very challenging problems and now having customer worldwide is definitely inspiring. And at least for me and like a lot of younger early stage practitioners, recent grads who aspire to make the world a better place using data. So Bukapa, this part of our conversation, I want to move into the final closing segment in which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions and then you can give quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the data universe whose work you admire. I wish that it was people. Um, I think for me, it's, I think, Going back to my previous question, I think people rarely do amazing things by themselves. Lots of inspiration at a lot of different stages, right? I think going back to, you know, even the early days of, you know, I, I don't know how many people have read about IBM and, and what IBM did in the 1960s and 70s. That's really where the data world started, right? And so to me, I think it's been studying and learning from the gates at every stage of the life cycle. I find the Snowflake story incredibly, you know, powerful and it drives me every day. So I think to me, it's been, it's more the projects and the kinds of things that these companies or products or open source projects have been able to do in the world and less to do with the people. Number two, what is one book that you would recommend for people to cultivate a better data-driven master? Big Data by Bernard Mar. And lastly, imagine that you send out a single tweet to all the early stage data practitioners on Twitter. What could you tweet about? So 
embrace the grind <laughs> um i think people tend to glorify especially early stage data practitioners tend to glorify data science like everybody thinks they're going to come into work and they're going to build this amazing predictive model deep learning neural net that is going to do something amazing like you know predict how you're going to cure a disease or something like that and they come in to work and then they realize that you know 80 to 90% of the work is finding the data and cleaning the data <laughs> and and you know like 10% of it is probably doing like a sim- pretty simple exploratory analysis on the data right and so i think your life as a data practitioner if you want to be a data practitioner it is not about the cool neural net it is about solving real life problems uh, and that's where it needs to start so you need to realize that solving real life problems is hard and the data is hard and you know you need to be ready to work with the bad data to solve the real problem in the best way yeah thanks a lot prokapa i think it's a fantastic way to end our conversation i think like I'm embracing the cries is similar to both being a data practitioner and being a father in general, right? So yeah, I really enjoy our conversation, learning about John the Grad in Singapore, how you start social corps, the initiatives in data for good, the project that led to the cultivation atlan, a variety of interesting thoughts on data catalog, data quality, data governance, and the modern data platforms, as well as some job sharing on your father's journey, ranging from fundraising, committee engagement, hiring, uh, go-to-market strategy. and inspiring stories by entrepreneurship in general. I'll be sure to include everything in the show notes so listeners can have a chance to take a look and dig deeper into your story as they wish and maybe even uh, yeah set up to try out Atlan if you know, they're part of a modern data team. So yeah, Kappa, appreciate it and hope you have a fantastic day evening. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. This has been like a great walk down memory lane. Uh, so yeah, have a great day ahead too. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of DataCast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.